Hello and welcome to Bups's Dharma Lounge. This is a relaxed time and place for exploring all things Dharma. In this episode, I'll introduce Sila, the ethical training of the Buddhist traditions. Hi, I'm Bhupta Frank Jude, here to discuss Sila, the ethical trainings of the Buddhist traditions. Apparently, when the Buddha decided to present his path of yoga practice, he did so in the time-honored tradition of listing a number of yoganga, which is a compound of yoga and anga, which is most often translated as limb of yoga. But also when these limbs are considered as elements of practice that are designed to lead to the goal of the state of yoga. They're referred to as auxiliary of yoga and that they are methods of practice for attaining the state of yoga. Now in the grand history of yoga, there are many paths with as little as four angas, such as the one presented in the Shangadara Padati, which includes posture, breath practices, meditation, and samadhi, up to a 15-anga system found in the Aparak Sanubhuti, including such items as rules and observances, renunciation, silence, as well as withdrawal, posture, meditation, and samadhi. <clears throat> the most famous among those who think yoga is limited to the system of enumeration found in the Patanjali Yoga Sutra includes the famous eight limbs. Uh, those of you who practice yoga, you're familiar with these. Yama and Niyama, which are understood often as the restraints and the observances of behavior. Asana or posture, which originally for Patanjali simply was the posture that the yogi took while meditating. Pranayama or the practices of breath awareness and uh, some in Hatha Yoga manipulation, Pratyahara or sense withdrawal, Dharana, concentration, Dhyana, meditation, and then the eighth limb, Samadhi. However, centuries before Patanjali, the Buddha offered his own eight-limbed system that he referred to as the Noble Eightfold Path. His eight limbs, which I'll discuss in future episodes of Bupsa's Dharma Lounge, when presented as the noble eightfold path, begins with right view and right thinking. Now, right here is not moralistically understood, but more as like appropriate, right? So the right way to get around Manhattan is with a Manhattan map, not a Seattle map. Doesn't make Seattle map evil. Um, so we've got right view and right thinking, first two limbs. Then it goes on to right speech, right action, and right livelihood, and then concludes with right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi, in this case, concentration. Interestingly, these same eight limbs are also presented by the Buddha as a threefold training, where the middle three limbs of right speech, right action, and right livelihood are presented as sila, the ethical training. 
Then comes right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi, which is the meditation training, right? And that's collectively, these three limbs are called samadhi, concentration. And then right view and right thinking make up the wisdom training, uh, prajna. Now note, when presented as the Noble Eightfold Path, right, these first two limbs, wisdom comes first, which signals that in order to even turn toward the path, one is evidencing an innate wisdom or sensitivity. And that is then developed and cultivated through um, ethical training and meditation. The ethical limbs follow as the heart or core of the path which indicates that when we live ethically, our minds can grow clearer, calmer, so that we can turn our attention to the meditation, the deeper practices. But when presented as the threefold training, ethical training comes first. It's the foundation that all is built upon, but it also permeates the rest of the limbs. We want to practice sila embodied in our meditation practice. We can then deepen our meditation practice, thereby uncovering deeper levels of liberating wisdom. So today, I'm just gonna share some general thoughts about sila. And in future episodes, we'll be visiting particular precepts, such as the precepts regarding speech, or the uh, third one, which is about sex. Overall, Yogic ethics is pervaded with the intention of reducing and avoiding the cause causing harm. Right. Indeed, the Sanskrit term ahimsa is most often translated as non-harm or non-violence. And this is so central to the yogic traditions that it's not only the first yama or restraint that's presented by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra, it's the first precept found in Buddhist yoga. Ahimsa. So the question then becomes, how do we practice non-harm? Well, in the Zen traditions, there are these three doors to the precepts, the literal, the compassionate, and the absolute. Now the literal is just that, it's the extreme limit of non-harm, right? And this is not really the Buddhist understanding. Uh, it's more accurately found in the Jain tradition of yoga, where the Jain monks would actually filter water in order to protect the microscopic beings that would otherwise be swallowed or killed when the water is boiled. Now, such extreme um, practices of ahimsa might lead to the idea that to be fully liberated, one has to stop all action, including eating and drinking so that at death, the soul is liberated. Um, but the question then arises, hasn't the literal meaning of the precept been broken in failing to nourish oneself? So the literal practice of the precepts is at best difficult and at worst, not even possible, right? Whether it's a carrot or a cow, when we eat, we are taking life. Our life subsists upon life. On the other hand, the absolute perspective says that there is no thought of death because as it says in the Heart Sutra, there is no birth, no death. 
If it is true that all beings are empty of any essential self nature, that there's no separate independent thing that is born, and so there's no thing that can die, from the perspective of the absolute, to even think that death is possible breaks the absolute spirit of the first precept. As Zen master Takuan Zenji said in an, in an attempt to encourage a samurai to fight, very similar actually to the argument used by Krishna to encourage Arjuna to fight in the Bhagavad Gita. Um, Takuan Zenji says, there is no one killing, no killing, no one to be killed. The peace of infinite emptiness pervades the universe. And of course, on the level of the absolute, this is absolutely true. But as Nagarjuna taught, these two truths of the relative and the absolute are equally true. This is something that a lot of people fail to really understand and they tend to uh, prioritize the absolute. But these two truths, the relative and the absolute, are seen as equally true. While there is no being killing and no being who is killed, there's still the blood, the cries, the screams, and the wails of those who are left behind. As Aiken Roshi wrote in his book on the precepts, entitled The Mind of Clover, this is a quote, the absolute position, when isolated, omits human details completely. Doctrines, including those of Buddhism, are meant to be used, and we need to be aware of them taking on a life of their own, for then they use us. So, what are we to do? There's the literal, which is pretty much impossible. There's the absolute, which negates or ignores the human realm. Well, we are encouraged to take the middle position between the formalistic literal and the rarefied absolute. And this middle position is the position of compassion. From the compassionate perspective, sometimes lying is right action. Sometimes taking life is right action. And it's this compassionate perspective that my teacher, Samu Sinim, called keeping precepts, breaking precepts. Now this uh, refers to those who keep precepts while violating precepts. On the surface, this may appear contradictory or confusing, but not when one understands the purpose and the function of precepts, of ethical training. What it means is if you adhere to the form of the precepts, and then become self-righteous, thus losing tolerance and compassion, you're violating the spirit, the purpose, and the function of the precepts. For instance, this is the all too common cause, case of the vegan yogi who adheres to the first precept of ahimsa by avoiding all animal products, while at the same time berating and criticizing those who continue to eat meat or dairy. The purpose of the precepts is to wake us up. They are mindfulness trainings, and their function is to make us stop and deeply look into both the context and the situation we are in, as well as the choices of actions available to us and their possible consequences. 
These precepts do not prescribe or proscribe specific actions, but they serve rather to make us ask questions. As soon as we find ourselves asking if something we are about to do breaks the spirit of the precepts, well then the precepts have done their job, so to speak. The first precept says to avoid causing harm and to cultivate reverence for life. And this provokes the first question, how do we go about embodying this? How do I cultivate reverence for life? Then we may find ourselves ask, asking specific questions like, is abortion breaking the spirit of the first precept? But that's too general. We have to look at the particular situation where a specific abortion may be the most compassionate action available. The best approach to the precepts is to follow the purpose of keeping the precepts rather than keeping the precepts for the sake of keeping the precepts. This is directly opposite to the deontological ethical model like Kant's uh, imperative, for instance, that says, for instance, we should never lie in any circumstance, period. The purpose of keeping the precepts, however, is to alleviate the fear and suffering of living beings and to emancipate them from hatred and delusion through our own example. And this is called unhindered practice. For instance, there may be circumstances where we have to break the formal literal understanding of a precept in order to save lives. And now a standard example that many teachers give is that lying to Gestapo agents in Nazi Germany to protect the lives of Jews, right? That breaks the literal precept against lying, but it keeps the spirit of the precepts of protecting life. And abortion may be the most compassionate response to a specific pregnancy and situation, while we don't deny that it's still taking life. So we don't take it lightly. There are situations where we may have to go beyond the constraints of some precepts in order to be close to sentient beings in need who are in, in order to be more helpful. Now to be sure there are risks associated with unhindered practice. Mahayana Buddhist ancestors have warned people who violate precepts do not go to hells and people who keep precepts do not go to heavens. And they also said, if a wrong person follows the right path, the right path becomes wrong. And if the right person follows the wrong path, the wrong path becomes right. This means it is imperative that we practice in order to be the right person, a bodhisattva, an awakening being of peace and nonviolence, a person of compassion and wisdom. I'm very appreciative of the messages of support and gratitude that I've been receiving from those who are enjoying this podcast. So I encourage all of you who are enjoying the Bupsis Dharma Lounge to subscribe, review, comment, and share so that others can become aware of this offering. And of course, if you wish to offer Donna to support my endeavors, 
The Donna link is in the description. I also would like to invite you to write in the comments or via my website, mindfulnessyoga.net, offering any topic suggestions or requests. Let's make this your place for Dharma exploration. Thanks and be well.